Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. Some of you may recall from prior episodes that Marion and I took a trip up the Mississippi River during the spring of 2022. Really wanted to see the spring uh, Mississippi flyway migration. It was a great experience. But I really enjoyed birding Arkansas during that trip. And so recently, I was looking for an Arkansas birder to be a guest on the podcast, and I quickly came on Dan Scheiman. Dan is one of the top listers on eBird in Arkansas, and in his eBird profile, it was clear that he's also a leader in the state's birding community. I reached out to Dan, and I'm really glad I did. He's an active proponent of using native plants to support birds and other wildlife as the coordinator of Audubon's regional Plant for Birds program in the southeast. He's also a longtime eBirder and eBird supporter, and really overall a pretty darn interesting guy to talk to. I think you'll enjoy hearing from Dan on this episode of the Bird Banner Podcast. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Good to be here, Ed. Yeah, I uh, Arkansas, cool place. I uh, you know, Arkansas is one of those states that I kind of never really thought much about for a long time. But a couple of years ago, my girlfriend and I decided to take a trip up the Mississippi River. And if you go up the Mississippi River from New Orleans, it's not long before you're next to Arkansas. Some pretty cool places there. I would guess that Arkansas was not on most people's maps until the news of the ivory-billed woodpecker broke back in 2005. And then the birding world's eyes started looking towards Arkansas and I think there are a lot of people who continue to come birding in Arkansas for all the good birds that we have, even if they don't expect to see an ivory-billed woodpecker here. Yeah, yeah, I, I wasn't expecting that. But I did, the, you know, those those southern wooded wetlands, I call them, but kind of, uh, you know, cypress swamps, I'm not sure what you call them, but are the coolest places. Yeah, well, we call them the, the big woods. That's that large bottomland hardwood forest tract that's mostly made up of uh, White River National Wildlife Refuge, Cache River National Wildlife Refuge, and some state wildlife management areas and natural areas. And it's one of the biggest tracts of bottomland hardwood forests in the lower Mississippi River Valley and home to a lot of good birds and a lot of interesting habitats. Really good. I mean, prothonotary warblers. I had, before this trip, I had maybe seen Oh, a handful of prothonotary warblers in my life. And every day, just that song everywhere. It was just super cool. They're pretty common all across Arkansas in any wet wooded situation. Yeah, it was really, really special. Uh, so, Dan, you have been a longtime Arkansas birder. Uh, sort of tell me your story, how you got into birding, and, and kind of walk me through your birding life. Sure. Well, I'm originally from uh, Long Island, New York, in case you can't tell from my accent. Uh, So as a kid, I think I was always interested in science and nature, and my parents were very good about catering to my interests. Uh, When I was about 13, we visited a relative in the Poconos of Pennsylvania, and she had a bird feeder with chickadees visiting it, and I thought that was really cool. So when I got home, my parents got me a feeder and a field guide and binoculars, and it blossomed from there. I discovered my local Audubon chapter pretty soon. That was South Shore Audubon Society. They had weekly bird walks every Sunday. So I went on a lot of bird walks. My dad was good about taking me on those trips. And I just knew that's what I wanted to do, study birds. So I ended up uh, applying to Cornell, early decision, got in, and uh, finally met birders my own age. 
and then pursued my career, my PhD in ornithology. And now I work for Audubon Delta, a regional office at the National Audubon Society. Oh, I didn't realize Audubon Delta was a, a national, a national, I, you know, I just thought, I thought, oh, maybe that's just one of the local Audubon societies. Okay, that makes more sense now. Cool. Uh, and you are highly involved in the Plant for Birds program. Tell me about that program and, and what it all means and why it's important. Yeah, Plants for Birds is an, a national initiative under Audubon's Bird Friendly Communities Initiative. So my job as Plants for Birds Program Manager for Audubon Delta is to promote the use of native plants across our three-state region, which is Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And native plants, of course, are the ones that feed our native insects, and our native insects feed our native birds, because 96% of all land birds feed their young insects, not seeds, not fruit, not nectar. Insects provide the fat and protein that the baby birds need. So no native plants, no baby bird food. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I've i really just in recent years come to kind of appreciate that. You know, everybody thinks, oh, plant's a plant, isn't it? Isn't this moth going to lay its eggs on any old plant? But no. I think thanks to Doug Tallamy, in large part, the entomologist from uh, University of Delaware, and his books like Bringing Nature Home, the thought the tide is turning for native plants. Also monarchs, too. That seems to be a gateway for getting people into native plants because they want to help the monarchs. So those things are changing opinions, changing the demand, changing the supply. We're not there yet in terms of a tipping point for really everyone going native and replacing their lawns with native plants, but it's slowly moving in that direction. I have an all Arkansas native plant yard, but I don't expect everyone to go all native in their yards. Just incorporate natives would be a good start. Yeah, that is. I, I had a friend ask me, he said, well, you know, I live in a suburb and, and, you know, if, so if I change my yard, what what is one little yard oasis in the middle of a whole bunch of uh, manicured lawns? What what can that do? It, it, does it matter? Is a little oasis of na native plants uh, even make a difference? Or do you have to have bigger areas? Oh, absolutely, right? Because the whole conservation movement is dependent upon individuals taking actions and all those actions adding up to a big effect. So if we all just tossed up our hands and said, well, I can't make a difference, then no one's going to try to make a difference. So yes, absolutely. You can provide an oasis for birds and other wildlife in your yard. And I I think I'm doing that in my yard. I've got butterflies coming in for the host plants. I've got uh, lots of birds in my yard. And I feel like they're there in part because of all the food and cover provided by the native plants. I don't disagree. I just was, I wasn't quite sure how to answer her question. She said that. I says, huh, well, I think it would matter. For sure. It does. Yes. Your individual actions do matter. We all have to work together to stitch back that landscape that's been lost through urbanization, suburbanization, uh, and also a, another native plant guru that I follow is Benjamin Vogt. He's a landscaper in Nebraska, and he challenges us to rethink pretty because he says, don't just treat native plants like ornamental plants. Don't just plant a flower here and a bush there. He's into recreating whole ecosystems in our yards. In his case, it's prairie ecosystems for him himself and his clients. But wherever you are, look to your nearest natural area. What plants grow together there? Bring those to your yard and support a diversity of plants and wildlife and 
allow for plants to kind of grow together and outcompete and move around. And that's, that's all okay. Sounds, sounds great. Uh, so you have been into uh, plant for plant for birds, uh, and you also uh, do a bunch of other birding related supporting the birding community in a lot of different ways. Tell me some of the other things you do. Well, I'm the vice president of my Audubon chapter, Audubon Society of Central Arkansas. I've been the vice president for a, a long time, but that's fine. I'm in a good position to find speakers for the group, uh, so I'm happy to do that. Um, I just recently finished my term on the Arkansas Audubon Society Trust. Arkansas Audubon Society is a state-based group of birders not affiliated with National Audubon. The trust gives small grants to research, conservation, and education projects, mostly to grad student research. So I just served my final and third term on the trust. I was on the trust for 15 years, and I was the chair for 12 of those years. Wow, big job. Yeah, but really, really worthwhile. I learned so much by reading those student proposals and then reviewing them and talking about them with my fellow trustees. It was really an eye-opener. I learned about birds and plants and insects and snakes and frogs and DNA and all sorts of great stuff. Really rewarding experience. Sounds super interesting. I uh, I am on the Washington Ornithological Society's Board of Trustees and have been trying to We've been trying to ramp up our young birder fund and and support we've, we've supported two or three recent uh undergraduate research projects. It's been you know pretty cool the stuff you learn. I mean, they they're doing some cool stuff. Will Brooks, uh like this phenom young birder who went to uh the University of Puget Sound near here, did did some work on the calls and the interaction of a couple of subspecies of white crowned sparrows, our Pugetensis race, our subspecies and the and I think it's the, I forget the other, and anyway, the how the call notes. And it was really fascinating stuff led to him going off to, he's getting his PhD now and, and somewhat related uh, stuff. So really cool. Well, this uh, past fall, the trust celebrated its 50th anniversary. So I reached out to past grantees to find out where they are today. Mm -hmm. And as part of our celebration relayed to everybody, you know, your, your support of the trust supported these people who went on to these prestigious careers in all sorts of areas, a lot of them in ornithology and conservation. And we brought some of those folks back to give talks to our group for the 50th anniversary. And it was really great, great to meet some of those folks in person. Yeah, it's uh, it is cool. Uh, so it's amazing how uh, a funny story. I my wife and I were birders, and uh, my wife had a friend who was a photographer. She had an advertising little boutique advertising agency, and a photographer, a vendor of hers, uh, came up to her and said, "You're a bird watcher, aren't you?" And he said, "She said, yeah." Uh, said, "Well, my daughter is really. She's like." into birds in like this crazy way. She's 10 years old and I don't know anything about birds. Could you take her birding? So little Annie, we took Annie out birding uh, at 10 and uh, she was like all over it. And she'd never, never met another birder or bird watcher in her life, but she'd studied books and read things. And she was obviously pretty darn good. Uh, so uh, she went on, she's employed in the uh, field, I think field ornithology before she goes on to her graduate studies now. And it's just this uh, young, fabulous bird or so just a little, little things you can do make a difference. It's a pretty cool story out there. I think you never know how you might influence somebody when you talk to them about birds, whether they're young or older. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, so you uh, you uh, studied at Cornell. So eBird, yeah, was yeah. You know about eBird when eBird was nobody else knew about eBird. Probably how has eBird affected how you bird and how you keep your records? And and tell me about your eBird story. Well, I uh, learned about eBird in two thousand six. Really, that's when. Um, Arkansas's previous eBird reviewer asked me to take it on for him because he was moving home to Wisconsin. He was just here for grad school. Uh, so I agreed to do that. And I started getting to eBird. And like many people who adopted eBird well into their birding career, I had to go back and get all of my lists into eBird. But also like many people, I was not keeping detailed lists of birds. Right? I'd have my life list, I had some state lists, I had some trip lists, which were no more than an accumulation of each new bird for the trip. Mm -hmm. So I did my same, best to get all that story. stuff in there. Same yeah, story. Right? Is there any trick to putting historical records in? I I mean, I, I did it, you know, botched it when I first did it and haven't gone back to redo it. But I know there are some kind of tricks or rules or ways you're supposed to do that. How how should somebody go about putting the historical records in eBird? Any tricks to make it easier? Uh, well, I should say that people should go to the help files for eBird because there is there are instructions for entering your historical list. If you search for uh, life list, I believe the article is like entering your pre-eBird life list and it'll give you all the details to do it with the most specific data you have. Do you have the state? Do you have the date? Do you have it? You know, that kind of thing. So you be as specific as you can be. If you can't be specific, then you use the January 1st, 1900 date and pick a location and you can just enter your whole life list that way if you want to and just mm -hmm. catch Ebert up and then go forwards from there. Yeah, I've heard of people doing that. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I did it a long, long time ago, and I'm not sure I even knew knew what I was doing, but it worked, and it's a great way to keep records now. It, I have to say, my uh, my field notes and records are so much better than they used to be. And I I learned a, a friend of mine, Bill Twite, recently shared a, a trip list with me that he had gone to Africa and he wrote the trip list. And and I've I've been keep I keep a little blog on my bird banner site, and I have a Ed's birding notes part of it just because it's handy and was writing things there. But I learned you can write. You can write a whole paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs under the comments of the triplets, which is just a great way to keep keep your kind of birding diary. Yeah, the new trip list feature is really nice. It's a great way to compile after going on a bird tour, or also it's really convenient for the Christmas bird count too, to get your whole list, your team's list, all the other team's lists compiled into one uh, list. So it's a nice feature. I've made a few trip lists myself. Yeah, they're really that kind of fun. It's uh, you know, you can and if you if you add some you know photographs to your eBird list, you know, it's it's all there too. So that's a uh, it's eBird eBird rocks. I just love eBird. I have to say, and thanks so much to you compilers. Oh my goodness, I learned so much from my compilers. You know, you you put a bird in and and you know, I'm not always right. You know, wrong sometimes, and or you know, need more questions answered. So it's really super good to hear back from compilers. Uh, uh, Ryan Merrill is a compiler here in Washington. And I went birding at a, at a little place up off highway 20. And, and I, I saw, I, I recorded a, what I, I recorded a Bewix wren. I mean, which is just, you can't go birding without finding a Bewix wren around here, most places. And, uh, and he got back to me and said, I've spent a hundred hours there and I've never had a Bewix wren. I think there aren't any there. Do you think it could have been something else? I'm like, 
I'm sure I just heard the sound. It could have been, you know, so you just learn a lot. Yeah, I think one of the great things about being an eBird reviewer is just interacting with birders all across the state and from all over the world. And whenever they hit my review queue and um, either getting to say, are you sure about that? Have you considered this to, wow, what an amazing find. Please also report this to the bird records committee and share this with everybody because people are going to want to go see this bird. Yeah. Bird records committees are, are great too. I just am in, in uh, you know, awe, I think of our bird records committee. The members are so sharp. I think you're on the Arkansas records committee, aren't you? That's right. I am on the bird records committee as well. Uh, and, um, one of the things I try to do as the eBird reviewer is steer people to the bird records committee. So whether they are a regular Arkansas birder or just a visiting birder, most people I would say don't think or don't know to submit something to their committee. So when I write to them, I give them the link, please use this online form, submit it to the bird records committee. It's, you know, a rare bird, extra limital. It's a uh, late bird, early bird, whatever, high count, submit this thing because it's important to keep that bird record up to date. And then that feeds back to North American Birds magazine. And it's it's important to, to um, get those rare bird records in the official database. It is. Uh, thanks for the work you do. So uh, I, as I said, Arkansas, I saw Arkansas as it abuts the Mississippi River. There's a whole lot of Arkansas that I know nothing about. Tell me about Arkansas and birding Arkansas and, and you know, where you're from and what kind of birding is there? Well, one of the nice things about Arkansas is that we are in the Mid-South, right? So we are at the center of a bunch of regions of the country. So we've got birds that are characteristic of the Southeast, the Southwest, the Midwest, the Northeast, all coming together in this state. And I'm in Little Rock, which is in the geographic center of the state, where all the various eco-regions, the Washita's, the Delta, the Gulf Coastal Plain, the Arkansas River Valley, they all come together and in this area. So we get a wide diversity of birds and you can go in different directions in the state and see completely different habitats and get different avifauna, which is really nice. So what what are some of your favorite, uh, you know, birding spots or hotspots in Arkansas? Well, one of the hottest hotspots is Bald Knob National Wildlife Refuge, which is about an hour northeast of Little Rock. And it is really good for shorebirds. The refuge manager there does a good job maintaining moist soil units for shorebirds, especially during fall migration. So my chapter always goes birding there in August for all the abundance of shorebirds, wading birds, uh, early arriving waterfowl. So it can be really packed with birds and a lot of rare birds have been seen there. Uh, another good one is uh, Stuttgart Airport. Stuttgart Municipal Airport. Birders from all over the world go to Stuttgart Airport to see Smith's Longspurs. It's the most reliable place in the state and maybe the region to see this range-restricted bird, right? They spend the winter in a limited area in the central U.S. Arkansas is in the center of their range. They are a habitat specialist on short grass in the genus Aristida called three-on grass. That's what they spend wow. the winter in. Three-on grass grows on poor soil. And apparently, and also when they when they make airports and they make the runways, they scrape off the uh, topsoil. They reveal the poor subsoil. This Aristida grows on it. 
Plus, Longspur is like wide open landscapes, right? No trees, no buildings. You get that at these airports. So a population of Smith Longspurs is that Stuttgart Airport, and it's the only airport in the state that lets birders go walking around the runways. Oh, very nice. Obviously yeah. not super busy. <laughs> well, in duck season, it can certainly be busy because Stuttgart area is the duck capital of the world, the self-proclaimed duck capital of the world. So a lot of people fly in to duck hunt in Arkansas and they go into Stuttgart Airport. So you do have to follow rules when you're there. Sign in at the birders register that I put there. Uh, be sure to stay off the runways. If a plane's coming, go move away from the edge. Don't face the plane so the pilot doesn't think you're going to run across the runway. Those sorts of things. The rules are posted at the airport when you go into the main office. So pretty obliging, pretty obliging yeah. to have them yeah. uh, allow you to get out there. So Smith's Longspurs are cool. We had a Smith's Longspur in Washington this summer, uh, right in the middle of an unexploded ordnance area on J. Trent Base Lewis McCord, the, the uh, fort biologist found it and posted this beautiful picture and said, no, you can't come. It would take a week of training uh, to even allow you to get close to this area, to not get blown up by the unexploded bombs. But <laughs> it was cool that we had it. Well, send your birders over to Arkansas. In wintertime, they can come here December through February and see Smith's Longspurs at Stuttgart Airport. Very cool. And I saw uh, that you're also a CBC compiler. Uh, what CBC do you run? The Little Rock and Lone Oak Christmas bird counts. Lone Oak uh -huh. is just to the uh, east of Little Rock. So what's weather like there at Christmas around, yeah, around the end of the year? I have no idea. It varies. Uh, we've had days where it's around freezing and windy. We've also had days where it's 50s and sunny. So it, it varies. They have the chance of a nice day. Oh, for sure. I really like it when we have nice weather um but i would take i would take cold and sunny over mild and rainy any day yeah we get mild and rainy a lot here so i'm i'm pretty uh pretty familiar with mild and rainy or cool and rainy as we, we call it. it uh it gets that way for months at a time here i'm in tacoma uh, in the puget sound area of washington and we get our share of winter rain for Sure. Uh, so besides Arkansas, I saw on your eBird gives me the opportunity to look at your profile. I saw you've been to a number of states around the country and, and, a, and a couple of places outside the country. Uh, what, what are some of your favorite birding spots around the U.S. that you've had a chance to travel to? Well, my wife and I love Saxzimbog. Oh. We've been there a few times now for Great Grey Owl and Northern Hawk Owl and the Finches, of course. Uh, one of our... <clears throat> Most memorable birding trips was to go see the boreal owl during uh, Valentine's Day uh, 2020, right before the pandemic basically shut down the United States. Right, mm -hmm. This boreal owl was at Saxonbog. It was really reliable, hanging out in this branch every day. We were looking at the news, drooling over the photos, deciding... We, we're not the type to just get in a plane or get in the car and just go chase a rare bird, a, a life bird across the country. But we decided, let's just go do it. It hadn't been seen for a few days before we went up there. It wasn't seen for a couple of days while we were there. But we were driving around, getting other good birds like sharp-tailed grouse, evening grouse beaks, keeping track of um, the uh, communications channels. It happened to be their uh, birding festival at that time. So there were busloads of birders all around. And then the word came out 
that the owl was seen and everybody out in the bog converged on that spot and we were all lined up and getting all the, the photos observing this boreal owl and it was an amazing experience and then we went home and then everything shut down i call up the spotting scope sign when you show up at a, at a stakeout and all the scopes are pointed in the same direction all the eyes are on the scope that's a really good sign you know that you're going to get the bird when, when you get there and everyone's kind of wandering around talking telling war stories not such a good sign well, you sure didn't need a scope to see this bird. It was right off the side of the road. Oh, my goodness. So really close up. Very nice. Yeah. Boreal owls are notoriously tough. I, the one boreal owl I've actually seen was uh, maybe at midnight in probably October, September, October at uh, Mount Rainier. And we sometimes go up there listening for uh, boreal owls and, and get them maybe half the time or less. But I was up there with a guy who had uh, had night vision a device anyway and he he found the owl with his night division device and said okay ready and he kind of shone his flashlight kind of creeped up on his flashlight and his flashlight got close to the owl i said there it is and it flew off <laughs> that was my that was my boreal owl sighting so you've had a better look than i have for sure it was walk away looks it was fantastic yeah i would really just such a memorable birding experience um the other life bird that we chased long distance was an ivory gull in Illinois. And we had uh, just gotten back from Wisconsin. My wife is from Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. We always visit family over Christmas and New Year's. Just gotten back. News of, the, of this ivory gull broke and we still had time off. We we're going back to work. So we said, let's do it. Just basically get back in the car, turn around, drive halfway back to Wisconsin to see this ivory gull in Quincy, Illinois. And I'm glad we did because I think it died the next day. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. I think maybe a predator got it. Um, so we were, we got there just in time, but like you said, birders lined up all over the place looking yeah. at this gull. Yeah. And That's it was cold. Ooh, it was really cold. Remind there was a Ross's gull that showed up in in uh, at the right near the University of Washington, and just a handful of birders saw it and got the word out. Everybody was racing to get there, uh, and just as somebody was photographing the bird, a bald eagle came swooped down and took it, and that was the end of the Ross's gull. So it was a scene photographed by like twenty five UW people and a couple of Seattle people who got there, and within less than a couple of hours, it was uh, bald eagle. Uh, dinner. So <laughs> nature's red and tooth and claw. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so I also saw that you went to Kenya. I, I've been to Kenya too. So for, for Kenya, I've been with a um, number of bird tour companies. This one was arranged by one of my Arkansas birding friends for oh, us, cool. Arkansans. And he found the guide and um, well, uh, who's a Kenyan. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we went over there and Spent a couple of weeks there, and that was my first time uh, across the pond, really. So basically every bird was new there. I think I got 421 life birds. It was fantastic. And of course, all the big five uh, um, animals and all the other wildlife we saw up close, it was really fantastic birding. Oh my gosh, I was just blown away by it. I would love to go back to other African countries. Yeah, Ken, I, Kenya was my first uh, first time to Africa and really only time to anything like that. And it was, oh my goodness, so crazy cool. Uh, just some fabulous experiences. Yeah. We had a uh, a snake eagle with a, mm -hmm. with a cobra 
uh, and uh, it it was right beside the road, and the snake eagle had gotten the cobra, uh, but the cobra had the snake eagle. So the snake eagle had the cobra in its talons, and the snake had wrapped itself around the wing of the eagle. And so it's like mid afternoon, and they're just they in like this death throws you know and is and uh, we watched for 15 20 minutes and neither one really could do anything the snake couldn't 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 let go of the eagle it was going to be lunch and the eagle couldn't get away because the snake had it by the wing and we all kind of wondered what's going to happen to this because we don't really know uh, but the guide said oh this happens with these snake eagles they'll just wait till it gets cold at night and the snake will kind of lose its energy and then it'll have it for dinner <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. We got to watch ostriches mating. Oh, this male wow. was doing this courtship display, ruffling his feathers and swinging his head on his long neck back mm -hmm. and forth. Oh, wow. And then eventually the female sat down and he got on top of her and that did was his that. thing. Yeah. Birding leads to just these fabulous experiences. I have to say, this morning, uh, there was a really cool uh, Zoom meeting on. Uh, I don't know if you know Tara Parker Pope. She was She's a, a wellness sort of author. She wrote a lot of books and used to work for the New York Times. Apparently now she works for the Washington Post. But you probably heard the Christian Cooper story, the Central Park Christian Cooper story. Well, he, is, uh, he wrote a book recently. So he was on her uh, video bloggy sort of thing. I'm not sure sure what you call it when you do a zoom meeting and live on the anyway uh and he had a quote that was uh he said something like uh one of the wonderful things about birding is that it forces you to look outside yourself for the moment and it's so true you know it kind of no matter what's going on you, you it's hard to feel sorry for yourself or think about something other one this fabulous birding experience is happening in front of you and you just it forces you to really get out and see things you wouldn't otherwise see and and kind of forget about the rest of the world for a little bit so pretty cool oh there's no doubt that birding has taken me places that i wouldn't have gone otherwise if i wasn't into this hobby and i feel lucky that i discovered birding at a young age because i've heard from plenty of my older friends who wish they had gotten started birding earlier and traveling earlier. So I'm quite lucky. Yeah, I'm kind of in between. I started when I was about 30. So I didn't get that, you know, the best birders, the people who have the best ears and started when they were, you know, teens or younger. Uh, and I don't think there's any recovering that. I mean, for the average, normally talented person, you just can't recover that early youthful learning that, that uh, you missed. But uh, yeah, so it, good for you. Good for you. I do a lot of my birding by ear for sure, but also put me in another country and I'm basically a beginner, right? Like I can generally recognize the different families. I do try to study birds. I make flashcards before we go on an overseas trip to get to know the birds so I can recognize them when I see them, but I'm still definitely a novice. I certainly don't know any of the birds by sound when I go or even to the other side, even to Western United States. I don't know most of those birds by sound because I don't encounter them every day. So it's all about context, really. Yeah. I just got back from uh, just North Carolina. I went out on a couple of project trips with a friend out of North Carolina this spring after a long, much, much uh, anticipated trip over the years. And we finally pulled it off. Uh, but just, you know, just the, I mean, out here, if you hear a loud bird sound and you don't know what it is, probably a bewick's run. Uh, but in, in the east, if you hear a loud sound and you don't know what it is, it's probably a cardinal or Carolina run most of the time. Uh, but 
Cardinals and Carolina Wrens. And so, so it's just every, you know, I don't know how many times I got my Merlin out and said, is that another Carolina Wren? Yep, it's another Carolina Wren, just making a different sound. So, you know, any anyone out of their home turf is kind of, unless you're pretty darn talented, is, uh, you know, in a challenging spot. Oh, yeah, for sure. Just to do breeding bird surveys in Arkansas, I had to learn pretty quickly how to separate Painted bunting from blue grosbeak, Carolina wren from northern cardinal, summer tanager from other things, you know, red eye vireo, yellow throated vireo. So, yeah, yeah, you really have to pick those things up if you want to uh, do bird surveys and make sure that you have complete checklists. For sure. Well, that's cool. Bird surveys, I've never really felt like I, uh, was good enough by ear to do bird surveys, but it is a cool thing. Uh, so you're a PhD ornithologist, and you've you've uh, you know found a career related to your uh, occupation. I know lots of people these days get a get a, a degree and end up doing something not terribly related to that. Uh, do you have any advice or suggestions to to young people who are want a want a career in birding and maybe want to become an ornithologist? Or how do you go about that? What any advice? Well, my mom's advice was to become a vet so I could afford to go birding, but I did do a summer internship at a vet's office and decided that definitely was not for me. I really like wild birds and not pet birds, and I love dogs and cats, but I'm not in the medical field. Uh, but, you know, she always said, who's going to pay you to watch birds? But I sure showed her. <laughs> Good on uh, you. Yeah. So, but if you want a career in ornithology, you definitely need a degree. Uh, master's, if not PhD. I'd say partway through my PhD program, I decided that I didn't want to stay in academia, that I'd rather be in a conservation field and do applied conservation and not really research and teaching. Uh, so maybe I didn't necessarily need to get my PhD, but I definitely started at a higher salary because of my PhD than if I had had just a master's. So that can be beneficial, but also maybe I could have gotten into my career five years earlier and started making money earlier. So there maybe there's some trade-off there. Um, so if you're interested in birds, then yes, definitely after undergrad, go to grad school, also try to get as much, much experience as you can. So during the summers in undergrad, I um, was a field technician in Maine, in Minnesota, and got valuable field experience surveying birds, banding birds. I also did an internship at the Cornell Biological Field Station, did my own research project surveying birds, and got to help other students with their projects. So that was all good experience that helped me get into grad school. Also, by being a field assistant on a grad student's uh, team that helped me make the connections I needed to get my master's project going mm -hmm. uh, in North Dakota. So you never know what connections you're going to make with people when you're getting that experience that will lead to the next step in your career. Very cool. So uh, generally good advice for ornithology or probably any career, honestly, is uh, you know get a broad range of experiences, get to know as many people as you can and get your education. So Good stuff. Uh, so uh, do you have, I, I kind of wrap up always with, uh, given my uh, guests a chance to, is there any uh, cause or anything you want to put a plug in for? 
Well, of course, I am biased towards Audubon Delta, which is what I work for and near and dear to my heart, uh, and also the Little Rock Audubon Center where I work. So those are causes that uh, I always put in a plug for because we do conservation and education work uh, in the greater Little Rock area and across the state. And now through Audubon Delta, we get to do work all across the three-state region. Uh, but also I love and support eBird too. Uh, eBird, kind of like National Public Radio, you get it for free, but if you can support it, why not contribute something to that? So yeah, I'm a member of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, but I I direct my giving to eBird because I believe in eBird. I volunteer a lot of my time towards eBird but I also donate for eBird because I think it's such a fantastic project. I'll make sure I put it in the podcast notes and in the blog, uh, uh, a way to, uh, a way to do that. So that's, that's cool. So if uh, listeners wanted to reach out to you, Dan, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Oh, well, you can reach me uh, at my Audubon address. That's dan.shyman at audubon.org. Okay. Uh, or you can find me on Facebook. Sounds good. Sounds good, Dan. Thanks so much for doing this with me. I appreciate it. Uh, always fun to hear from a birder from a different part of the country that I uh, always learn something when I talk to talk to guests on these shows and no, no, uh, no different today. Thanks so much. You have a great day, Dan. Take care. My pleasure. Good chatting with you, Ed. Thanks for listening. As always, I'll try to put links in the show notes, as well as on a blog post on birdbanner.com, the topics we covered in this episode. I hadn't really thought about Arkansas as a place to go for winter birding, but it sounds like it's a pretty good spot in the winter, too. Lots of Smith's Longspurs, that's cool. I'd love to hear from any of you about who you'd like to hear from in future shows. Reach out to me on the contact page on birdbanner.com or in the review section on your podcast feed. I'd love to know who you want to hear from. On the next episode, I'll have Scott Harris as my guest. Scott wrote a recent book, Raptor Quest, Chasing America's Raptors. It's available on Amazon or wherever you get your books, about his quest to see all of the raptors in the lower 48. And he has lots of ideas for future birding adventures. He is not someone shy of big ideas. Stay tuned to hear from Scott, and thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day. <laughs>